are listening to the official podcast of Resurgence Initiatives, inspiring people to arise together. For more information, go to liveresurgence.com. Jim to join us and uh, I just want to say Jim publicly we are so thankful we're so thankful that you would come from London and uh, it's a long way push through jet lag and uh, and just be with us and pour into us and I really believe the Lord strategically I think back to how um, I I was at Bethel and some of you have seen our video well Havla called me out with the word the next year I came back I met a guy named Nate God connected us it was a God thing Then about a year and a half, two years later, I'm at Nate's church in the back, and that's where I met Jim. And so it's just funny how God connects, and it's a God connection. And I just, I really believe that God connected us, and I just believe that it's just so key that you were here this weekend, and um, and it's just, it's just amazing. And so please thank Judy for us, and uh, we hope to see her one day in in Canadian soil and uh, come visit us but just uh, want to say a really big thank you and we just honor you and so can we give it up for Jim thank you, thank you mm. all right thank you so much worship creates an atmosphere of hope and hope is an invitation to dream so let's dream dreams so audacious that they shake the old paradigms, dreams so authentic that they move the heart of God because he is able to do way more than we could ever imagine. So let's imagine. I want us to watch a video clip of a father, 70-some-year-old guy, old guy's rock. You're going to be one someday, some of you, if you survive. Uh, He is the father of one of my favorite worship leaders. And there's, if you've seen this clip before, watch it again. I think there's something for us in it this morning. And then we'll go into some more teaching. Ken Heltzer. Every story has a beginning. I don't know where this really begins, except I know in May the 19th, 1970, I came home to Jesus after a rock and roll career and lots of smoking dope and come home to my wife and she forgave me for three and a half years of unfaithfulness and we began to follow Jesus. And it was hard, it was trying, it was beautiful, but in 1976, something happened that wrecked my heart, my life. She had made several trips to the physician, her gynecologist, her female doctor. And he said, Linda, there's some problems. The long and short was she had cancer of the uterus. And what was necessary was to have a hysterectomy of surgery to remove all the female organs. I wasn't so concerned about that because we had two daughters and we had enough. and. I didn't want any more children anyway because I figured some of the drugs I did, why risk having a child deformed? And two weeks before the schedule of hysterectomy, a prophetic man, because back in those days in the 70s, nobody was known as a prophet. But a very prophetic man called me and said, I need to see you. 
something happened that's life changing. He would go to a baseball field where there was some swings, kind of a playground. And he would go there in the evening and intercede. Retired school teacher, he prayed. He said, last night I was on a baseball field and Jesus just suddenly appeared in front of me. I've never had that happen before. I was shocked and the Lord said, it's okay, Kermit. But I have a message I want you to tell my servant, Ken Helsing. I want you to tell him first, I've healed his seed and I have never told anybody the reason I didn't even want any more children is I was concerned about the drugs that he And here's a man that I barely had known only one other time saying, Jesus said, I've healed your seed. And you're going to have a son. And his name will be Jonathan David. And he will play the harp. He will sing like an angel. And he will write prophetic songs for his generation. And his music will go out all over the earth. Now, when you're two weeks from his directory, that's, that's dramatic. And I said, God, is this year? And it grew in my heart, and I never knew I wanted a son so badly. And in a short amount of time, my wife and I are praying and telling the gynecologist, can you do one more test? On a Sunday, I anointed her with oil, prayed for her, and it wasn't dramatic. But during that prayer, my wife touched the hem of Jesus' garment. On Friday, with the scheduled hysterectomy on Monday, they did a DNC, and that's when they go in and scrape the wound. The test came back on Saturday, and when the doctor came down the hall whistling, we said, that's a good sign. He stuck his head in the door and said, the pathologist is baffled. He's consulted me three times, saying this is not the same woman. Ken, your wife is 200% okay. We got pregnant with a little boy who was named Jonathan David. And he was all boy. He never showed any interest in music. He just loved to play sports. I don't care if it was a ball, he was into it. But at 19 years of age, graduating from high school, he came to my room one night and he said, Daddy, didn't you used to play guitar? See, we never told him the whole thing. We told him, God healed your mommy. We had a baby. We didn't tell him what he was going to be doing with her. I said, Did you used to play guitar? Can you teach me some chords? And so we sent him off to Nuneaton YWAM in England with a guitar and a Bible. I came to visit him in November. And on the last night before we were returning home, some of the kids said, you should hear some of Jonathan's worship. I said, Jonathan, I got a little cassette we play, and I know your sisters would love to hear you. You're playing guitar better. He said, yeah, play a song better. And he played this song, and I went, oh, my gosh. Who wrote that? He said to me now, he says, I'll never forget the look on your face because you had waited 19, well, really 20 years for a word of a prophet to become reality. We will dance in your palace all our days. We'll sing in your temple with all our praise. We'll shout down the walls in the name of your son because we will overcome. We will overcome. I said, Jonathan, you wrote that. I said, the first song you wrote is the, prof the prophecy of your entire life. My generation, the 60s, the hippies, we threw away our inheritance. 
We've wasted what God gave us. It's your generation to take back what my generation destroyed. You're going to take back the land. And you're going to do it through the power of worship. And so it is that here I am, 71 years old. And it used to be, oh, Jonathan David, Ken Helser's your daddy. <laughs> no more. You're Jonathan David's daddy? Oh, that can't be. I just say, I'm no longer slave to fear. I am a child of God. Isn't that a great story? Yeah, thank you, God. One of the things that I have learned in recent years is that some of the things that I didn't used to think were big are big deal to God. Like honoring your fathers and mothers in the Lord. Uh, no matter the circumstance, they gave you life. And it's a big deal to God. The generations together, turning your hearts, wherever you are, find someone, someone from other generations and turn your hearts and it breaks the curse and it brings blessing to God. And uh, I, that's just a big deal to God. And Ken was a father who did that. And look what God did through Jonathan David and his wife. Prophetic words and promises are invitations, but nothing is guaranteed. God himself looks for a man or a woman who will be wholehearted, as we said. Uh, I was thinking, reading recently about the 12 spies that Moses got. They were all leaders. And when you read the names of the 10 that died, no one names their kids after those, those men. But I, are there any Caleb's here? I know. Yeah. Okay. And Joshua's? Oh, yes. Okay, okay. One of the saddest verses in Scripture is in Psalm 78 where we read that the children of Israel pained or they limited the Holy One of Israel. Wouldn't it be amazing if this was a generation that did not, through unbelief or pride or self-centeredness, hold God back, but became the generation that saw something unlimited come from heaven and touch the planet. So what all the naysayers are saying turns out to be wrong. And there comes a generation of men and women that stand strong and 
worship Jesus, and there are fresh movements towards Jesus around the planet that nobody is expecting. I think we're ready for such a thing. I think Canada could lead out in such a thing if there are people like you in the room. I love when God, well, I didn't, I don't love when he, he killed the 10 spies. Do you know how they died? No, I, I don't either. It doesn't tell us. It just says they died of a plague. <laughs> That's not a good way to go. I don't know if the earth opened up or they were zapped or big bugs ate them. I don't know what happened. But, <laughs> yeah, let your imagination go. But they were self-centered. They said, we are not able to do it. They all saw the same thing. They're all leaders. But two of them said, it's not about us. It's about God. He is able to do it. Let's do this thing. And I see a generation that are dying to self. I wish I could get the email address, idiedaily.com or something like that, gmail.com. It's taken. I, I checked. But I think that Jesus came to set us free from me, actually. And the 10 spies who perished and put God on hold for 40 plus years were so into themselves that it kept them from inheriting the promise. But Hebrews tells us, let's imitate Abraham, who through faith and endurance obtained the promises. And I was reading this morning about Abram, who became Abraham. You know, God changes names. I don't know if he's done that to you. It's, it's weird. Uh, but here's this old guy and his wife at the end of their life, and, and God says to them, Abraham, come out. I want to show you something. Look at the stars. Yeah? Count them. Your descendants will be more than the stars of the sky. Let's look at the sea sand. Can you count that? No. Abraham believed God. Now, he considered his own body. He wasn't in denial. He knew he was beyond the years of having children. And double trouble, his wife was beyond. So how's that going to work? But he considered the deadness of his own body, but he considered God faithful who promised. And he said, God, I'm going to claim your word. And he went out the next day after God said, now you're going to be father of nations not just mighty father. Lord, do I really have to go through this? Yeah. Well, I'm going to wait till I'm pregnant. I don't want to embarrass my wife. No. You got to go and tell everyone who says Abram. You got to say, excuse me, now I have a new name. It's Abraham. I'm now the father of nations. And he still wasn't pregnant. They had no hope, nothing. But he considered God as faithful. He thought God's word is going to happen. I don't know how. I don't know when. But I'm going to tell people I am now the father of nations by faith. And they became parents. And of course, you know the rest of the story. So I think our, my biggest wrestle, and I think for a generation is to get over ourselves 
and selfish ambition and self-centeredness and thinking about self, whether you're thinking good or bad, you're just stuck on yourself and get stuck on God's word and his promises and you could make the cut like Caleb and Joshua did. And as you read through those passages, there's some sadness, but God says, have you considered my servant Caleb and Joshua? They are wholehearted, and I'm going to bring them in. They may be on hold for a while, but when out of those 12 leaders that all had the promise, all, had, all were at the conference, all heard the prophetic word, only two of them made the cut. And at that moment, God assigned a leadership role to Joshua. And he became the guy that brought him in to the land because he met God's qualifications, wholeheartedness. And Caleb was sustained. And when you see him 85, he's saying, I'm as strong as I was when I was 40. I don't know if he was just dreaming or if he'd been working out with Travis uh, uh, or e eating protein pills. I don't know. Here's someone's protein bar. Maybe it's a prophetic sign for me. Well, I don't know. But when he was 85, he said, I remember that Moses promised me the hill country, and I want it. He was not passive saying, well, whatever. If God wills, maybe it'll happen. No, no. He went to Joshua after they obtained most of the land, and he said, okay, do you remember 40 years ago? No, what happened 40 Moses said uh, he was going to give me the hill country where the giants were, and I'm ready to go for it now. And he got it because he asked for it. Jesus said, until now you've not asked the Father anything, told the disciples. But I say to you, ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. And when I speak to young leaders, I ask them, have they been leading in prayer and asking? Have they asked for anything wonderful recently? Because there's more. And when uh, Elisha said to Elijah, and you've got the generations together again, you got the young guy, and there comes a day when Elijah's about to die, and he says to Elisha, you get one question. You get one prayer. What do you want from me? Have you ever had God say to you, what do you want? What would you say? A new car. A new wife. Uh, no, um, th th that's not a good idea. Uh, what would you ask for? And this young prophet, Elisha, he blew all our minds because he said, I want twice of what you've got. And I think Elijah's what? You want twice? Yeah. And the amazing thing was, he said, if, if you chase after me, and if you are there when I die, and you grab my clothes that falls down, you've got it. Now, why did he ask for that? I don't know, but I think it's the best thing ever to ask for things. And, um, I think maybe he'd seen the hand of God in a generation 
speaking words and doing miracles, and I think he had a passion that another generation would see more of what he'd seen after his mentor dies. And I think he said, why not me? I'm going to ask for it. He wasn't into himself. He didn't want to be famous. He wanted God to be famous in another generation. And he said, I am going to step out and ask, and I want twice as much. And he got it. How much in heaven is sealed up for other generations because people just don't step up and ask? I've just had a few experiences with God. Well, yeah, a few. <laughs> Times wondering what the heck is going on, being confused, all of that, of course. But when I was younger in a, a training school there in Germany where we were some years, uh, a man came and preached about communism. Uh, and he went nation by nation. And he said, who is going to be like a David that's going to take down giants? There are still some giants out there in the world. Who's going to sign up and say, give me the giant and run to the giant like David did? And he led us in a prayer time, and he mentioned different nations. And when he'd mentioned the nation of Albania, that they took the final few priests... Orthodox and Catholic priests, they could find, rolled them and sealed them in barrels, rolled them into the sea, and declared, we are the first totally atheistic nation on earth. Something within me said, uh-uh, that's changing. But when there was this prayer time, I don't know what happened, but I remember standing up in the midst of a crowd and saying, God, I ask you to give me a part of bringing down that giant over the Albanian peoples. And I sat down. Did other things. God led us to serve other ministries around the world. And finally, we moved to, Athens, to, to Greece. Lived in Thessalonica for nine years. And uh, there came a day when there was an invitation to come and serve in the nation of Albania. And I remember as we rolled into Tirana that night, it hit me. 20-some years ago, I stood up as a young single man, and I crazily asked God, would you give me the, something over the nation of Albania? And here we are. And it was like, oh, my goodness. Prayers are dangerous. It really works. It can work. How does this even happen that I'm here leading a group of people, and God's giving us the ability to serve in this nation of Albania. Doesn't that make you want to pray a little bit more? It's not like how many hours did you spend, you know, God's got the time clock. No. What are you asking for? I think there's more. I think of uh, the, the man um, Naaman. I don't know if you read that story at all. I was reading it recently. And here's this um, Syrian man. He's number two in the kingdom because it's the king and then his chief of armies that kind of, that's how it worked in those days. So he's a big, he's an important man. And there's a, a refugee. We don't even know her name. She's a, she's a girl. She's young. She's a Jewish refugee in a, a Syrian home working with his wife. And one day she, when he has leprosy, she blurts out, if Naaman could get himself to my city of Samaria, he could get healed. There's a prophet in my city. 
And Nathan hears about it. And he decides, I am going to go for that. And he gets permission from his king. He takes a huge entourage. He travels quite a ways. And he comes to, as protocol requires, the king of Israel. And the king of Israel says, you've come to be healed. I can't heal you. He tears his robes. Yeah, he's kind of a drama guy, I think. And it doesn't really go well. But he keeps going until he comes to the town of Samaria. And he comes, he finds the house of the prophet where Elijah is living. And Elijah doesn't even come out and say hi. He sends a little notepad, just says this. Go and dip seven times in the dirty water out here, and you'll be healed. Sincerely, Elisha. <laughs> when you read that story, he comes out and he says, okay, I'm offended. We're going home. He doesn't even come out and say hi. He doesn't give me anything to drink, which would be the culturally appropriate thing to do. He tells me to dip. We've got better rivers at home. Let's go home, folks. And he turns in a huff, and he's angry. His expectations are not fulfilled, and he's on his way back. And some of his friends say, Naaman, we're here. Just do it. It's a little thing. And seven times, and when he comes up the seventh time, he gets healed, and he goes back. Imagine the hunger that brought him on a long trip to get something from a man of God in a far-off place, the indignity of dipping in a dirty river, but somehow he and his friends pressed in and they saw God do something. Would, would you be a generation that would be like that? Would you go? I think um, we're going to end in a few minutes with a, a video clip that deals with passivity. I heard some teaching a few years ago on, on that subject. And I realized, Jim, you've been a passive leader. When someone would assign something to you, you'd do it and God would show up. And then when it was done, you'd be like, I don't know what to do. And here, here's what happened. I, I began meeting maybe 10 years ago with some young surfer guys in Kona. They said, we just, we want to grow. Would you meet with us? So we'd meet once a week. And uh, they'd share and pray one for another. And at the, at the end of the meeting at about 8 o'clock, uh, one day they said to me, Jim, we want to pray for you. And it's like, well, yeah, next time. It's not about me. I'm, you know, I'm here for you. This is about you guys. No, no, Jim, we need to pray for you. And one guy gets in my face. And he says, Jim, we need your community. We need your voice. And he's, he's exhorting me. And then another guy screws up his face like when God's doing something. He's got that look. He's a songwriter, surfer, Daniel. He says, Jim, I just had a picture of your face. And I, I saw that the devil had cut out your tongue. Whoa. I knew what that was. I had gotten an inv invitation to do something in Australia, and a good friend of mine talked me out of it and said, Jim, you're probably not that good. You probably don't have 
enough to share. And, and I, I said no. And the Holy Spirit, through my two friends, young friends, they had their own problems, but God showed up. And so I repented. I, I said, I know what that is. And I said, right, let's pray. And I said, God, I repent of wanting to remain in my comfort zone, and I will never say no again. And now I ask you for 10 invitations instead of that one that I turned down. God was messing up with my face. He was in, up in my grill, whatever you say here in Canada. <laughs> yeah, anyway. And I'm thinking, he's doing it because I, I'm pouring out my life to these friends. A few weeks later, after I repented, two of my friends come walking down the hill to a worship time in our campus, and they were coming right at me, and like, uh-oh, what's, what's up? You know, maybe they're going to mug me, but I know they're Christians. And they grab me and they say, Jim, we've been praying. And we're starting a, 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 a training deal for leaders in the Philippines. And we prayed and feel like we should invite you. Would you come and teach a week? I'm like, I'll pray. And I thought, I can't say no to this. Jim, say, and I had to raise money. And I brought another young leader, about a third my age. And we went. And it was an incredible week. And God began to connect me to amazing young leaders from all over the world. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, what is going on? And here's a principle I've learned. And this is from uh, my wife's Bible here. It's got really fine print. But I've got one contact lens in and one not, so I can read it. <laughs> in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I used to read Timothy a lot because he was young and I was a young guy. I still think I am, but anyway. It's, uh, and it's short. I like short books, actually. Um, flee evil desires of youth. Flee. Like, what are you running from? What do you avoid? What do you, do you have a strategy to protect yourself? Because like the old uh, games, Pac-Man or whatever it used to be, before you were born, they used to play. You're scoring points, but if you don't look out, someone will, if you get taken out, it's game over, right? How would the devil take you out? I like to ask my young friends. Do you, where are you vulnerable? If there is a devil, and if there are schemes against you, what do you think's cooking in his scheme plan right now? And then, what steps have you taken? So I decided years ago, when we, there used to be bookstores, don't think there's many anymore. But I used to, there, were, there were one or two aisles I'd, I'd see and I'd thinking, in the fear of God, I am not going in that aisle. I could get curious. I could, wa I could look at stuff. God has delivered me. I am not going in that aisle. That's my plan, to flee something. I think we have to play a little defense once in a while because if it's taken out, it's game over. So I like to ask people, what's your plan for protection? Do you have one? We can't afford you missing the purpose for which you were put on the planet. What would be the loss to God and his kingdom and the peoples of the planet if you don't find and fulfill your purpose? Or what would be the blessing if you did? Anyway. The second part of that verse is another ver verb that says pursue. Righteousness, faith, hope, and peace. 
I think that's resurgence. A bunch of people together pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. But it's the last part that's the kicker to me. Along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So I like to ask people, can you give me five names of people that are running after Jesus with you? Who are they? And people that are really doing well usually give me some names. And people who are struggling often say, I, I, I don't have any. Isn't that interesting? Peer pressure, positive peer pressure, running after Jesus with some friends is amazing. And it's the way we're to live our life. And when I look back at 50-some years of following Jesus, I, I've had times of decline and plateauing. And, but the times that there was an acceleration were times I was pouring into others and I, I had people in my life. And at the end of the day, I, just, I would be tired but good tired and just like not tempted, not weird, not feeling isolated or rejected, feeling like, why do I feel good? It's because I did good today. I was serving people. I was speaking truth. I was, I think God's happy and I'm happy and I'm feeling good. Does that make any sense to you? And so God showed up because I was investing in those seven or eight young men over a number of months. He showed up through them. So what am I saying to you? I'm saying, don't do it alone. (laughs) Find some people. I think that's a little secret, a little key. But going back to passivity, uh, I used to think, what do I, who do I influence on a weekend? Weekend? That's your free time. How many football games can you watch? How, whatever. And I'm thinking, Jim, I think leadership is who, how you influence people when no one asks you to. And I realized I was a pretty passive leader. So I got a thought one day in Kona in our campus that I'd been there a number of years, and a young friend of mine, he's Haitian-Canadian, dreadlocks from Ontario, near Toronto. Christoph, maybe you don't know Christoph. He's legendary. He's a friend, and he's in the, he's in the course. You know Christoph, yeah. And... Uh, He's in this counseling course, and I'm not going to get invited because I don't do counsel. I'm not into that, and uh, it's not happening, and I'm sitting waiting for the phone to ring. Phone's never rung. And I think I, I could come in and give a word because I care about Christoph. And there's a, I think it would be good for one of the men who's a leader on our campus to come and give him a word. And then I thought, Jim, that sounds like, pro- uh, what's the word, Ambition. And Paul said, avoid selfish ambition because every evil thing comes out of that. And you don't want to have ambition selfish. And and I thought, Jim, no, no, I'm dead. I couldn't care less. It's not about me. I care for my friend. I would like to come and serve him. I have enough courage to believe God. Should I invite myself? Is that pride? I I thought, no, I'm going to do it. I found the school leader, and I said, is there a slot you can give me? I'd like to come and give a word. I didn't have a word, but I, I knew I would. <laughs> I hoped. And he gave me a slot a week down the road, and I come in, and Christoph and some other people are sitting there, and I talk about Lazarus and how Jesus 
called him forth. But he kind of comes like the Michelin man. I don't know if you've seen that. It, well, he's, he's all wrapped up. So he's alive, but he's, he can't really go anywhere because he's all wrapped up with the grave clothes. And Jesus does not do that miracle. But he turns to the friends and says to them, you unwrap him and let him go. And I say to that, that school, if we're believing that there's going to be a surge of young people come to know Jesus in this generation, and I'm putting my life into it, there will be. There's going to be a lot of people messed up that are going to need a second touch of grace. They're going to need people to unwrap them and see them delivered and healed and set them free and with spirit-filled counselors. Would you do that? It was, it was a word. I, I just gave it. And it encouraged them. And I thought, I've been sitting on my rear end I could have done this. There's been these schools every three months for years, and I've been passive, and I'm leaving passivity behind. You cannot passively destroy passivity. Yeah, I said that right. Huh. Kind of tricky. And uh, passivity says, yeah, I'll get to it someday, but it's not in your calendar, and it may not ever happen. And I made a choice before the Lord that when it comes to serving and doing ministry, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to invite myself in. I'm going to start writing teaching emails to people. Again, Jim, are you into yourself? I'm thinking, no, no way. I know that people will read these, and they want me. And I, I, I started in, inviting myself to, to go and speak some places. I know that sounds weird. I didn't, have, I didn't do that here. Now, we talk about David, and he never, you know, he waited until... Saul died. He didn't kill him. He, you know, he let God promote him. And I realize that's true in terms of positions, but not in terms of ministry. Was David passive? No, he, he got these weird people that no one else would take. And he found a cave, and he began going after the Philippines. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Track, take two. He went after the Philistines, and he killed them all. And pretty soon there were 400, and there were 600. And when Abigail stopped him from killing her idiot husband, something like that, uh, she said, we know even when Saul, Saul was king, you were leading Israel. So you don't need to wait to have a title to influence. So whatever your gift is, if it's evangelism, if it's teaching, just start it. Start small. Find one person. Take initiative, and I think the body of Christ in North America is paralyzed through religious passivity that looks spiritual, but they're waiting. But you know the Bible, it, there's a few things in there it already says. Encourage one another daily. No, not every day. I mean, it doesn't really mean, yeah, it says every day. So I used to have a contest with my hip-hop drug dealer friend saying, how many are you going to encourage tonight? Five. I'm not saying. I'm going to get ten. I'm going to prophesy over ten. How many? And we had this contest. I know that sounds so stupid American. I, I know. Okay. I said it. But we were stirring up one another to love and good works. And I think God liked that contest. I mean, we don't do it every day. But we did for a while. And uh, oh, that's another verse. Stir up one another to love and good deeds. Who have you stirred up? How? When? 
oh, I'm waiting for a vision. No, open your Bible. <laughs> There's a lot of things already in there. So to share your faith, to pray for someone, to begin to be active is a big deal. I wish someone had told me that when I was 20 or 30 or 40. I think I was about 50. But I decided I am going to not be passive. I'm going to take whatever gift. I'm going to stir up the, the flame of God within me. And I'm going to start walking to people. And I'm going to ask him if I can pray for him and bless him. And I don't even know if God's going to come through or not. And it, it, at least it will be a, Lord, bless this man. And that's good. But maybe God will give me something. I think God likes that. Hmm. I think you got the message. I think we're going to almost finish here. One more little point, and then we're going to finish with a, 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 I think it's two-minute video clip. Whoops, what was that last note? Oh, yes. I have learned that you can increase in hunger all of your life. And you cannot command people, you know, like your youth group in your church, everybody, on the count of five, be hungry. <laughs> but in leadership, you can create an atmosphere where you come together with extreme hunger and it is contagious because God promises to fill the hungry with good things. But the pride, proudful people, he stands away off. You can cultivate humility and spiritual hunger corporately. And I see that as one of the things that you guys are doing in resurgence. And God will show up. And he will take something and he will multiply it and you will be a blessing. And he, he will do things through resurgence that five years from now you'll say, remember when we were just a few people meeting in that room? Those were good days. But can you imagine what God is doing now? What's the key? There's a number of them, but increasing spiritual hunger is one. And I've decided wherever I go, if I'm going to be with young leaders, I'm going to challenge them to increase in hunger personally and corporately because it's a big deal to God. And you know that, so I'm just preaching to the choir. But I'm asking for more, and I'm looking for more, and I'm just saying, God, you laid hands on me. And Paul wrote from prison, I'm trying to lay hold of more because what is it that you've laid your hand on me? I want more of it. So he's increasing in his crying out to God, and God is releasing things, and there is more. Whatever age you are, whatever stage, there's more. Ask God to help you walk in increasing hunger because while you are seeking him, you will find him. When you stop seeking him, you stop finding him. But he's looking for the hungry. He sees and he comes. That could mark your generation. This last video clip, and then after that, I'll, I'll turn it back over to Travis here. Um, it might sound like a promotion to an event, and it is, but Maybe God wants a few of you to come to Orlando in uh, February because you could use a little warm weather, right? <laughs> it, maybe, but seriously, um, some of my young friends, a young guy that I 
I met in Singapore about 15 years ago and asked if, if he would come to our campus and lead worship prayer. And he didn't, didn't seem interested, but he prayed and he came. And God's been using him to birth movements across the nations. And uh, he's behind this uh, uh, event that you'll see. But I, I want to play the video because there's, a, there's some steps. It, it talks about active Take care of disactivity. I, you, you'll see it. But it has to do with cultivating hunger and beginning to do something. It's one thing to say, yes, God, we take all your promises. Thank you, God. It's another thing to do something towards it. And I think this will inspire you. And then uh, I'll ask Travis after this one plays to come and, uh, and, and close the meeting. So let's roll this. What if the greatest revival in history was waiting on our yes? Imagine an entire generation activated into their evangelistic and missional calling. For starters, if every believer in America led just one person to Jesus this year, over 100 million people would come to faith. That's over one-third of the U.S. Research says that the church has 3,000 times the financial resources and 9,000 times the manpower to finish the Great Commission. That means we could finish the Great Commission in this generation. Now is our time for a new sending movement to see the church activated to their greatest days ever. That's why on February 23rd, we are gathering 60,000 believers from across the nation to Camping World Stadium in Orlando, Florida, believing that a tipping point of action could inspire an entire generation and usher in a new era of missions and evangelism for the world. So here's how we're gonna do it. From now until the send, we are mobilizing the nation by holding pre-rallies in hundreds of high schools, universities, and churches, and mobilizing thousands of volunteers to leverage their social following and gather their circle of influence. During the gathering, we are believing for three things. Number one, unprecedented action. For tens of thousands of commitments to adopt one of four mission fields, high schools, colleges, neighborhoods, and the nations. Number two, a culture shift. For every believer who attends to be activated and equipped to live the lifestyle of Jesus in the truth of the word and through the power of the Holy Spirit wherever they go. Number three, historic commissioning. Finally, we are asking God for a double portion on a whole generation, that what a few walked in in the past, many would live out in the present. Everyone has a part to play and every voice is needed. Join this historic effort by becoming a send rep or volunteering on the day of the event. Find out more and register today at thesend.org. Thanks for listening to the official podcast of Resurgence. For more information, go to liveresurgence.com.